2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering today's program. Well, today we're going to talk with Joel Griffith. He is a research fellow in the Rowe Institute. Uh, We're going to be talking about whether stagflation is in our future in 2022. And later in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars and author of Wrath, America Enraged. All of that coming up. Uh, In today's program. But first, look at some of the uh, headlines. The big news story of the day the Supreme Court today struck down the Biden administration's COVID 19 vaccine mandate for private companies and other organizations with at least 100 employees. Well, it was in a separate case, however, that the High Court did allow vaccine mandates for employees of federally funded health care facilities. In the main case, the majority of justices expressed their doubt that the federal occupational safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, which is part of the Labor Department, has the legal authority to impose an emergency regulation to implement a vaccine mandate. Administrative agencies are creatures of statute, the majority opinion said, and they added... They accordingly possess only the authority that Congress has provided. The Labor Department secretary has ordered 84 million Americans to either obtain a COVID-19 vaccine or undergo weekly medical testing at their own expense. That is no everyday exercise of federal power. The question then is whether OSHA authorizes uh, the secretary's mandate. It does not. Well, the act empowers the secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures, end quote. Well, the high court heard arguments on Friday on the OSHA rule, which was supposed to go into effect this week before being halted pending court action. Well, the new rule required employer employees rather uh, either to get fully vaccinated or be tested for covid-19 on a weekly basis, again, at their own expense. Well, the justices ruled six to three in the two separate decisions, but broke down along different lines. Another, um, uh, after the decision, rather, White House Press Secretary Jen Sackey, she touted the High Court's decision upholding the vaccine mandate for healthcare facilities, which she said would cover about 17 million Americans. Um, and now it is up to individual employers to determine if they, uh, it is safe for their employees and to determine if their business is safe for consumers. She added that many employers have imposed vaccine requirements without being told to do so by the government. But the big question is whether or not the government can compel that kind of action. Well, health care facilities that receive Medicaid and Medicare funds are still subject to a separate Department of Health and Human Services vaccine requirement, and that's based on their receipt of federal funds. Only Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh were in the majority for both decisions. Uh, the Washington Post reported that uh, that means that they were the only conservatives to uphold the mandate for health care workers. Liberal Justices Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan voted to allow both vaccine mandates. Conservative Justices uh, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett they opposed vaccine requirements for both private workplaces and workers at federally funded healthcare care facilities. The mandate for health care workers covers, as I mentioned, about 17 million. Well, the White House had said the mandate for private employers uh, would have covered about 80 million Americans. Well, a number of businesses, nonprofit organizations and 27 Republican led states sued to halt the administration's mandate on private employers. The Heritage Foundation parent organization of the Daily Signal was among the plaintiffs challenging the mandates. Uh, The lower courts were divided on the issue, but the decision was made today and that decision will stand. Meanwhile, business groups are heaping praise on the U.S. Supreme Court after the court halted the administration's vaccine and testing mandate for businesses with 100 or more employees. The National Federation of Independent Business that sued along with dozens of other plaintiffs to stop the administration from using its uh, power in the occupational safety, or I should say presumed power in OSHA, was among the first to celebrate. Said the NFIB Small Business Legal Center executive director, today's decision is welcome relief for America's small businesses who are still trying to get their business back on track since the beginning of the pandemic. As small business try to recover after almost two years of significant business disruptions, the last thing they need is a mandate that would cause more business challenge. Uh, She went on to say, we are pleased the Supreme Court stopped the rule from taking effect while the courts consider whether or not it's legal. We're optimistic that the courts will ultimately agree with us that OSHA does not have the emergency authority to regulate the entire American workforce. So, again, the lower courts will um, decide on this issue as to whether or not um, the authority exists. And it may very well be that the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately uh, answers the ultimate question as to whether or not this is constitutionally acceptable meanwhile liberals across the twitter sphere reacted with anger they attacked republicans and called for democrats to pack the supreme court following the highest court's decision to block the president's vaccine mandate uh, the social justice association alliance for justice tweeted in response to the 6-3 ruling today that blocked the mandate saying the supreme court's conservative majority has chosen to prolong and deepen the misery of the pandemic Former Hillary Clinton advisor Zach Petcanis, he accused the court of prolonging the pandemic as well. The Supreme Court issued the mixed ruling in a pair of cases, as I mentioned a moment ago. The court ruled that OSHA lacked the authority to impose such a mandate because the law was created that created OSHA rather empowers the secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures. So, again, lower courts will be uh, making some decisions. Um, but the uh, court has said OSHA does not have the authority. On well, other news, um, Kirsten Cinema uh, said Thursday that she will not vote to weaken the Senate's 60 vote filibuster threshold, bucking her party leaders yet again, dealing a major blow to the Democrats' election reform effort. The comments, matched her uh, long-held stance on the filibuster, are effectively the final nail in the coffin of the long-shot effort to pass two elections bills over unified Senate GOP opposition. There's no need for me to uh, restate my long-standing support of the 60-vote threshold to pass legislation, Sinema said. There's no need for me to restate its role in protecting our country from wild reversals of federal policy. This week's harried discussions about Senate rules are but a poor substitute for what I believe could have and should have been a thoughtful public debate at any time over the past year she added but what is the legislative filibuster other than a tool that requires new federal policy to be broadly supported by senators representing the broader cross section of americans demands to eliminate this threshold from for uh, from whichever party and historically both parties have attempted to do so holds the fleeting majority amount to a group of people separated on two sides of a canyon shouting that solution to To their colleagues. So um, it is essentially um, dead on arrival. Meanwhile, the president who traveled to Capitol Hill today to meet with lawmakers and push for the message admitted it's not going to uh, pass. He doesn't know if uh, we can get this done, but he said he will continue to fight in the days ahead. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Joel Griffith. We'll be talking about whether or not we're facing stagflation in 2022 to find what that means and talk with Joel Griffith about the likelihood of it reappearing you're listening to the georgine rice show
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: hey welcome back you're listening to the georgine rice show well during the late 1970s my next guest Uh, American families experienced stagflation. Now, you might not remember what that means, but it's a combination of economic stagnation and significantly higher inflation. By the summer of 1980, unemployment hit 7.8 percent and the economy was actually shrinking. On the year, inflation spiked 12.3 percent. I'll give you a moment to gasp. Well, some fear that today's slowing economic growth, 2.3 percent annualized last quarter and the steepest price hikes in 40 years portend a return to stagflation. We're here to put this all into perspective and answer the question. Is it likely that we are going to see stagflation return is Joel Griffith. He is research fellow in the Rowe Institute at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Hey, hello. Thank you for having me.
2: Now, that's a word we haven't heard for a little while, stagflation. Maybe you can uh, explain once again what that means and whether or not we should fear its return.
3: Oh, sure. Well, the term stagflation came into being about 40 years ago during the Jimmy Carter era. It was a combination of two terms, inflation, which we're all acutely familiar with right now, mm-hmm. and high unemployment. Combine those two numbers together and you get the stagflation rate, economic doldrums plus higher prices. Well, now, fast forward 40 years, we're seeing some of the highest, actually we're seeing the highest inflation rate since 1982. A lot of your listeners weren't even alive Mm -hmm. in 1982. So we have very high inflation rates, and at the same time, we have a slowing economy, and we have millions of people, fewer working today than we did a year and a half ago. And there's a fear that because of a lot of government policies that are suppressing supply combined with an enormous amount of spending, that we could be in for a period where people see their standards of living decline as prices increase faster than wages.
2: Now, there was some speculation early on that this was just fleeting. We're going to see this change relatively quickly. Are are we talking about uh, months into the future, or uh, do we see an end in sight?
3: Well, a lot of these uh, economic experts at the Federal Reserve are saying, oh, these higher prices are just transitory. I'm not sure exactly what they meant by that, but now – We're a year into this, and each and every month we see these prices going higher. And a lot of that has been due to the fact that we had, for the first time in our nation's history, governments criminalizing people from going to work, forcing businesses to shut down, shutting down schools. This is unprecedented, and that has wreaked havoc on our economy. Now, some of that is clearing up, of course. We see a lot of states have reopened, but if you look at what's being proposed in Congress by the far left, they're proposing to vastly expand the welfare state and they're proposing to continue to clamp down on energy production, all of which would result in less supply. And, of course, they're planning on spending more, which means you're going to have our central bank printing more money. So I'm concerned that even if inflation rates come down from the elevated levels, we could still be in for a prolonged period of slower economic growth because when you, when you slow down supply and when you increase the amount of money that's being printed, that's a recipe for higher prices and slower economic growth.
2: Now, some suggest that the fact that we are in a pandemic, that in and of itself explains how we got to where we are. Could this have been avoided? And you've answered that question in part, but I want to give you an opportunity to address it directly. Could we have prevented what we're now experiencing and are likely to experience into the future?
3: Yes, we could have prevented these much higher prices and could have prevented much of the misery that we've been experiencing if you look at the vastly different ways in which places like new york city and miami florida for instance combated this pandemic it's almost two different worlds you have new york that is still still enduring a lot of restrictions you have about a quarter of their population some neighbors that can't even frequent businesses because they don't have a proof of vaccination and meanwhile you have places like florida that are booming you have businesses that are full. You have restaurants, entertainment venues that are full. People are pursuing opportunities while other parts of the country remain with far um, smaller economies than they had a year and a half ago. So we could have avoided this by allowing people to make informed decisions for themselves rather than forcing businesses to shutter and forcing schools to clone. This was avoidable.
2: What role has the supply chain shortage and the manufacturing shortage played in in all of this uh can that be explained simply by the pandemic or were there decisions made that exacerbated the problem
3: yeah decisions made by government officials exacerbated the supply chain issues now some of this was out of the hands of our um, united states government you had a lot of factories and shipping uh supports that actually closed or were partially closed across the world and that had a ripple effect to our system because we do have an interconnected global economy and that's That's actually helped a lot of families over the years um, because we've been able to to do more with the economic resources we have and live better. But when you have governments that are shutting down supply centers, well, that has a ripple effect through the economy. Now, we made things worse, though, particularly in California on the supply chain side. You had unions that would not allow the ports to operate 24-7. You had governments that were paying people not to work. Most people, including in the warehouse industry, found they could make more off the job than on the job. And in California, the pandemic restrictions were so difficult on truckers. Think about the, the basic necessities. What does the trucker need? They need to be able to get a hot meal. They need to be able to get a shower. They need to be able to take some rest and relaxation sitting down indoors at a restaurant instead of in their truck. Well, in places like California, it was very difficult for truckers to enjoy those basic necessities of life. And some of them chose, I don't blame them, but some of them chose to leave the business and retire. And we couldn't get new truck drivers in because a lot of the licensing facilities were closed. So California exacerbated the problem, not to mention California knocked a bunch of trucks off the road by making older diesel trucks illegal. So California made things a lot worse for all of us.
2: Mm. Now, the president's uh, proposed Build Back Better Act, the tax and spend package, uh, was being um, proposed as a solution to much of this to transform the economy what impact would that have had and, and could it have if in the future it reemerges on the economy and this effort to recover?
3: Uh, it would have a lot of negative repercussions. And that's because this built back better plan um, would actually transform in a very negative way our energy system, for instance. It incorporates a lot of the Green New Deal that would actually banish a lot of affordable fossil fuels from our <laughs> supply and would force us to rely upon far more expensive less reliable so-called renewable forms of energy and at the heritage foundation we've estimated that the full implementation of the green deal would cost families upwards of seven thousand dollars per year and that's a big part of that package but within that package too is a big expansion of the welfare state um it removes a lot of work requirements for for welfare assistance and all of this would go ahead and actually would disincentivize people from working so once again it suppresses supply. while at the same time, because there's so much spending involved, it would require our central banks to print more money to buy government debt, which would go ahead and increase inflation on the demand side. So yes, that Build Back Better plan would actually run the risk of making economic conditions worse into the future.
2: Since government policies have played a role in uh, future stagflation, um, what should we look for? What should we demand to try to reverse the trend?
3: Well, we need to demand that a government official live within the means. Quit trying to put in place programs that will have a short term political benefit by showering money on in special interest groups or you know, specific parts um, of the population in order to go ahead and, and garner political support and live within our means. Uh, these plans are already running huge deficits every year, so every dollar of additional spending means another dollar we have to borrow, another dollar that we have to print, another dollar in taxes that we have, have to hike. And then second of all, when it comes to this energy sector, you know, energy is so important. We benefited from a boom in natural gas production. It meant that for a while, for a while, we enjoyed lower energy prices across the board, and that we could produce items more affordably and compete with the rest of the world. Well, when you put in place a green New Deal that's in this package and what the administration is moving forward, you're guaranteeing that those costs are going to rise, and we have to hold these politicians accountable.
2: Mm, something to look forward to, Joel Griffith. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your insight.
3: All right, thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Again, Joel Griffith is research fellow in the Rowe Institute at the Heritage Foundation. His column appeared in the Sacramento Bee. A commentary is stagflation returning to 2022, and sadly, the answer appears. To be yes. I want to remind you that Mission Connection Northwest is coming Friday and Saturday, the 21st and 22nd of this month. That's next weekend. We're going to be broadcasting live on Friday from 4 to 6. So if you happen to be in the area, stop by and say hello. Some great. Uh, Speakers, wonderful opportunities for workshops, 80-plus of them. Also, resources and exhibitors, 80-plus of them as well. I have the uh, great joy of co-emceeing the conference this year, and we're just delighted that we are back in person. So we hope to see you there. Of course, the event is free, but you do need to register online. You can do that either by going to kpdq.com, and registration is very simple, or you can go to Mission Connection, and that's spelled with an X, missionconnection.com for all the important details. All right, we're going to take a break here in just a moment, but uh, when we return, we'll continue to wind our way through some of the day's headlines. And later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with uh, Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars. His book is simply titled Wrath, America Enraged. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back if you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Peter Wood, the book Wrath. Well, Mitch McConnell fired back at the president's profoundly unpresidential speech, as he called it, calling it deliberately divisive. The Senate Republican leader fired back at the president on Wednesday, one day after the president's electoral election overhaul speech in Georgia, with McConnell alleging the speech undermined democracy. Well, McConnell torched the president from the Senate floor, tearing into the president over his panned speech, calling it deliberately divisive and one that was designed to pull our country further apart. Well, the Kentucky Republicans said Biden called million of Americans, millions, Uh, Of Americans, his domestic enemies in the speech and shouted that if you disagree with him, you're George Wallace, George Wallace McConnell. Uh, continued. He also slammed the president for invoking the civil war to demonize Americans who disagree with him and pointed out that the president compared bipartisan majority of senators to literal traitors. How profoundly profoundly unpresidential, he says. Look, I've known like um, liked and personally respected Joe Biden for many years. I did not recognize the man at the podium yesterday. Unpresidential, it's become far more common. ...than in the past, at least to my recollection. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki brushed off a senator, or rather Senator McConnell, calling his criticism of Biden's speech hilarious... Well, she may have disagreed, but it wasn't really hilarious. Senator Tim Scott says Biden's voting rights speech was offensive to me as a Southerner and an American. Said liberal senator and ally Dick Durbin, Biden perhaps went a little too far in his elections overhaul speech. Tucker Carlson said Biden's speeches reveal what he really thinks of Americans. MSNBC's Al Sharpton said Biden's voting address was a you're going to hell speech, not a vote getting speech. Well, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy rejected the January 6th panel's demand for an interview, claiming the probe isn't legitimate. McCarthy says he will not voluntarily speak with the House Select Committee investigating the uh, protest on the Capitol on the 6th of January 2021. As a representative and the leader of the minority party, it is with neither regret nor satisfaction that I have concluded to not participate with the Select Committee's abuse of power that stains this institution today and will harm it going forward. The California Republican said in a statement last night, this committee is not conducting a legitimate investigation as Speaker Pelosi took the unprecedented action of, re- of rejecting the Republican members I named to serve on the committee. He added it is not serving any legislative purpose. The committee's only objective is to attempt to damage its political opponents, acting like the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee one day and the DOJ the next, end quote. Well, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol sent a letter Wednesday requesting a voluntary interview from McCarthy. Representative Benny Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi who chairs the committee, wrote in the letter that the Democrat-led panel is seeking information regarding his communications with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, as well as insight into President Trump's mindset preceding and during the riot. In other developments, Senator Ted Cruz slammed the uh, arrogance of the FBI to stonewall his January 6th questions. Did they actually solicit illegal conduct? He got no answer. In fact, uh, the FBI responded, or at least the spokesperson responded, we cannot respond. The top FBI official dodged when the senator asked if agents participated in the January 6th riot. And there seems to be evidence to support the fact that they did. Jim Jordan has snubbed a January 6th interview uh, request, setting up a choice for the committee on whether to subpoena fellow lawmakers. The White House warns the art world is rife with money laundering at the same time Hunter Biden sells his paintings for five hundred thousand dollars a pop. Jen Psaki dodged questions about Hunter Biden's sale of uh, Chinese assets. Dr. Fauci says the U.S. won't eradicate COVID-19 despite President Biden's pledge to shut down the virus. Senator Tom Cotton used Democrat Leader Schumer's own words in his defense of the filibuster on the Senate floor. It is essentially at this point dead on arrival. Only a third of Americans have given President Biden a thumbs up in a new national poll, 33 percent to be precise. Kansas Senator Marshall reiterated uh, his demand for Dr. Fauci to disclose his finances after his Capitol Hill moron dust up in which he called a member uh, a moron. White House economic advisor Brian Deese is pushing spending as an inflation fix at Tom Brady clothing line has uh, launched. I wanted to mention that because I think uh, Sam might want to. Check in on that. Delta has extended the life of expiring travel vouchers from a pandemic and um, uh, private equity firm TPG raised a billion dollars in IPO. Bill Gates says COVID-19 vaccines are missing two key things. Uh, Gates has donated one point seven five billion dollars to COVID-19 vaccine development and fighting the pandemic. He said this week that while the current um, currently available vaccines prevent severe illness and death, they aren't durable enough and should be better at preventing infection. Gates said first, they still allow the infections or breakthrough and the duration appears to be limited. We need vaccines that prevent reinfection and have many years of duration, end quote according to a new poll, as mentioned a moment ago, President Biden's approval fell to 33 percent found on page three of a Quinnipiac poll, which has him at 20 points underwater. Once again, the younger generation likes him less than anyone of those ages 18 to 34. His approval is at 24 percent. Also putting fear into the Democrats, his approval among independents is 25 percent and only 28 percent among Hispanics. Dan McLaughlin weighs in, saying Biden won 51.3 percent of the vote 15 months ago. This is the swiftest, steepest collapse since George Herbert Walker Bush went from 91 percent approval to 37.5 percent of the vote less than two years ago, um, or rather less than two years. From CNN's Ryan Stryak, President Biden's overall approval rating is uh, the last seven Quinnipiac polls, 49 percent, 46 percent, 42, 38 37, 36, and the most recent at 33. Well, inflation skyrocketed in December. I suppose I don't need to tell you that. Prices rose 7% compared to a year ago as inflation is now at a 40-year high. With inflation factored in, wages decreased by a 2.4% from December of 2020 to December of 2021. Eric Randolph points out, if he's the Georgia Center for Opportunity, the problem is that we've established a new floor for prices that likely won't go down in the coming years. Those impacts are most acutely felt in the areas that... Uh, hit the pocketbooks of the lower income the hardest, such as food, rent and energy. Now it's more important than ever to avoid pumping more stimulus into the economy. That will only worsen the problem. From the Wall Street Journal, the Labor Department said Wednesday that the consumer price index rose 0.5 percent in December or 7 percent in the last year. That's the highest annual rate since 1982, when Paul Volcker was uh, trying to wring inflation out of the the economy rather with Ronald Reagan's political support. The current inflation has caught the Federal Reserve and Biden administration entirely by surprise, and they're still not sure what to do about it other than to blame someone else. USA Today promotes a kind view of pedophilia. The article argues it is misunderstood due to those abusing children. You can read more on Fox News online. It didn't go over well with the public, and they deleted their tweet soon after. That's USA Today. President Biden has Democrats worried about the midterm elections. Not a shocker, but Ed Morrissey explains Democrats looking at a midterm abyss want an actual coherent strategy from the president on COVID-19. Politico reports that grumbling has grown so loud that Biden's allies on Capitol Hill that a few of them are willing to state on the record that whatever Biden's doing on the pandemic isn't working medically or politically. And according to the Associated Press, it's time to rethink how the media reports on COVID. The Associated Press has recently told its editors and reporters to avoid emphasizing case counts in stories about the disease. That means, for example, no more stories focus solely on a particular country or state setting a one day record for number of cases because that claim has become unreliable. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to work our way through some of the news and look forward to a conversation with Peter Wood coming up in the second hour of today's program.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to mention a couple of things. So, winter resources on our website Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you heard me correctly. When the weather turns, well, takes a turn, count on us to keep you informed of weather-related school, business, and other closing delays or cancellations. Yep, KPDQ. We also have a warming center and shelter resource page so you know where you can go, where you can get help for someone you see struggling in the cold weather as well. Um, click on the weather resource page at kpdq.com for all the important information that you might need. Also, and this is a... A little bit of a different announcement. The World's Greatest Recipes, Volume Volume 1. If you're looking for some new recipe ideas for the new year, check out our brand new World's Greatest Recipes, Volume 1, downloadable cookbook. There you have it. It has 122 pages of new, fun, creative recipes from authors, musicians, pastors, teachers, and... Well, you, our listeners, the cookbook, rather, is the result of the Your Favorite Recipes Contest we ran this past year. It's free to KPDQ club members. And if you aren't already a member, now's the time to join. It's all free to download at KPDQ.com. So check it out. The World's Greatest Recipes. Wow. Volume one. I have to go there and download that myself. Well, again, we're continuing to uh, look at some of the the day's news and there's lots to report. An Illinois grade school is allowing a satanic temple to hold an event for kids. And the satanic temple was open about their uh, affiliation in a flyer given to children at James Adams Elementary in Illinois. I'm not sure what the benefit uh, is supposed to be in this Illinois grade school. CNN sees a massive drop in the first week of 2022. CNN averaged 2.7 million viewers from the 4th through the 10th of January last year as the network experienced a brief post-election spike, but plummeted to only 548,000 average viewers last week for a stunning year-over-year drop of 80% of its total audience. Well, last year, on the 7th of January, CNN boasted about uh, a coverage of the Capitol riot resulting in the most watched day in the history of the liberal network. Many observers have mocked the network for tweeting about ratings success on what CNN anchors have regularly called one of the darkest days in American history. But viewership totals from the uh, one year anniversary of the riot indicate Americans have since moved on. Well, new NC2A guideline says if you've had COVID, you are fully vaccinated. That's the NC2A. Maybe sanity is returning. Well, ex-CNN producer and alleged child sex trafficker hit with civil suit. Uh, speaking of CNN's um, troubles, longtime producer John Griffin, who was recently fired following federal child trafficking charges, has been hit with a $15 million civil suit. Interestingly, he was the producer of the now ex-host Chris Cuomo. The suit raised on behalf of a nine-year-old alleges for several years prior to 2020, the defendant solicited young girls, including the minor plaintiff, for the purpose of knowingly persuading, inducing, enticing, and coercing them to engage in activity, exploitation, and or sexual trafficking. He faces life in prison if found guilty of federal charges. I mention that because it's always heartening to me that Predators are caught and charged and held accountable for this kind of conduct. Sex trafficking is a serious issue and it's happening all around us all the time. A Virginia transgender teen has been sentenced for sexual assault at the height of parents clashing with the Loudoun County School Board in Virginia over its pushing of critical race theory and transgender ideology. You might remember the father... Uh, was uh, dramatically arrested, he's now become the dubious talking point for the left media to claim that parents were the problem. Well, it later came out that the father was there to express his outrage and opposition to the school district's transgender policy, a policy that led to his daughter being sexually assaulted in a schoolgirl's bathroom by a boy wearing a skirt. it was later learned, and that's not to suggest that every boy wearing a skirt is going to be a sexual predator, but in this case, that was the case. It was later learned that the male student was transferred to another school in the county where he sexually assaulted another female student. Now, the male student was recently found guilty and sentenced to a locked residential program where he will undergo constant psychiatric supervision and be registered as a sex offender. Now, that's unusual for a minor. But again, it's encouraging to know that the individuals who engage in this kind of conduct are held accountable. Well, some blue states have voting laws just as restrictive as their red counterparts. Nobody's talking about that. In a mind-boggling turn, producer prices soared by 9.7 percent in December, the biggest gain on record. And red-hot inflation is eating away at most Americans' wage gains. The Ohio Supreme Court has rejected new statehouse maps, you know, redistricting there. And the Chicago Teachers Union has accepted a deal to return students to classrooms, finally. Well, New Jersey is set to codify unlimited abortion. Well, during the Trump presidency, a number of progressive states such as Illinois, New York, Rhode Island and Vermont enacted laws making it easier for women to obtain an abortion even after fetal viability. And several of those states formally defined abortion throughout pregnancy as a fundamental right throughout pregnancy. Well, earlier this week, New Jersey came one step closer to joining that list of progressive states as the state legislature sent an expansive pro-abortion bill to the desk of Democratic Governor Phil Murphy who has already pledged he will sign it. Well, on this day in history, 1794, President George Washington approved a measure adding two stars and two stripes to the American flag after the admission of Vermont and Kentucky to the Union. The number of stripes would later be reduced to the original 13. It just looked better. 1915, a magnitude 7 earthquake centered in Uh, Avizano, Italy, I'm sure I mispronounced that, claimed about 30,000 lives. Imagine that. 30,000 in one event. 1941, a new law went into effect granting Puerto Ricans U.S. birthright uh, citizenship. 1968, um, Johnny Cash performed and recorded a pair of shows at Folsom State Prison in California. Material from the concerts was released as an album by Columbia Records under the title Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison, which would prove to be a hit. Lots of people thought he had a prison background, but that was not the case. 1990, L. Douglas Wilder of Virginia became the nation's first elected black Governor, when he took the oath of office in Richmond, Virginia. 1997, seven black soldiers were awarded the Medal of Honor for World War II valor. The lone survivor of the group, former Lieutenant Vernon Baker, received his medal from President Bill Clinton at the White House. On this day in history, 2000, Microsoft chairman Bill Gates stepped aside as chief executive and promoted company president Steve Ballmer to the position. 2009, President-elect Barack Obama's nominee for Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton vowed during her Senate confirmation hearing to revitalize the mission of diplomacy in U.S. foreign policy. And finally, on this day in history, a false alarm warned of a ballistic missile headed for Hawaii. The message sent the island into a panic. People abandoned cars on a highway and prepared to flee their homes. Officials apologized and said the alert was sent when someone hit the wrong button during a shift change. Now, it's alarming to consider something that simple. You just inadvertently hit the wrong button and an entire state, the whole island, is set to, to panic. Anyway, that was 2018. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour and also in the second hour. Peter Wood, author of Wrath, Coming up, we'll also um, talk a bit about uh, a really bad day for the president on a number of initiatives and what the Supreme Court has to say about uh, OSHA and their vaccine mandate, um, the executive order from the president. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back after news and traffic. You're
1: listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blinn producing, Sam Maupin engineering. In this hour, we're going to hear from Peter Wood. His book is titled Wrath. That's coming up the next couple of segments. We'll also review the big headlines of the day. The Supreme Court of the United States on the OSHA vaccine mandates, voter rights legislation, and the filibuster. We'll bring you the latest on all of that in this hour well total federal tax collections in the first 3 months of fiscal year 2022 that's october through december set a record as they topped 1 trillion dollars i won't try to read the whole number but prior to this year the most the federal government had ever collected in total taxes in the first 3 months of the fiscal year was in um, fiscal 2016 when it collected 902 Million four hundred and ninety. Well, you get it in constant December twenty twenty one dollars in the first three months of fiscal year. Twenty one. The federal government collected uh, significantly less than that in total taxes. So this year was rather significant record federal tax collections, topping one trillion in three months. Hmm. In view of my conversation earlier in the program with Joel Griffith makes one wonder where that uh, where that leaves us. Well, Prince Andrew's military affiliations and royal patronages are being returned to Queen Elizabeth II at her behest in the wake of his ongoing legal battle with Jeffrey Epstein accuser Virginia Roberts uh, Guffrey. On Thursday, Buckingham Palace confirmed in a statement sent to uh, uh, media that the reigning monarch, 95, agreed to accept the returned accolades with the Queen's approval and agreement. The Duke of York's military affiliations and royal patronages have been returned to the Queen. The statement read, the Duke of York will continue not to undertake any public duties and is defending this case as a private citizen, end quote. That is significant. Well, one uh Royal source also claimed that the Duke of York will no longer use his Royal Highness or H.R.H. in any official capacity. Well, on Wednesday, the judge refused to dismiss a lawsuit against the British prince by the American woman who said he sexually abused her when she was 17. U.S. District Judge Louis Kaplan rejected an argument by Andrews attorney. That she that the lawsuit rather should be thrown out at an early stage because of an old legal settlement she had with Epstein, the late American financier who claimed uh, she claimed set up sexual encounters with the Royal 61. Kaplan said the five hundred thousand dollar settlement between Epstein and the uh, uh, the accuser didn't involve the prince and didn't bar a suit against him now. Well, the queen's second son previously quit public duties in November of 2019, but he was still listed on the royal family website as a patron or member of around 100 charities and organizations. The accuser sued Andrew in August, alleging she was coerced into these encounters with him in 2001 by Epstein and his longtime companion, Ghislaine Maxwell. Uh, She said she was uh, abused by Andrew at the longtime home of Maxwell, at Epstein's uh New York mansion and his estate in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, this is significant, not only because one individual is going to be held accountable for his alleged actions, but also in view of the fact that uh, Ghislaine Maxwell has ended her fight to keep John Doe names sealed. Who's sweating now is what one um, headline uh, read with regard to those who were involved in this kind of activity um with her and... um her patron, if you will. Well, A whole lot of John Dole's are likely more nervous this morning. At issue, uh, the lawsuit that I just mentioned requested uh, or request rather to unseal documents that name names in her since settled civil lawsuit against Ghislaine Maxwell, which led to a lengthy and ongoing open records battle. Well, in December of last year, a Manhattan jury in uh, Maxwell's trial returned guilty verdicts in five of the six charges against her after six days of deliberations. Maxwell faced federal charges that included conspiracy, violations of the MAN Act, and that's capital M-A-N-N, and sex trafficking, a minor for her role as uh, Jeffrey Epstein's longtime confidant and now convicted accomplice related to what prosecutors described as Epstein's pyramid scheme of sexual abuse of minor girls. Well, depending on what Lies underneath the redactions, the unsealed information could make waves inside the same courthouse and around the world. Now, the. Uh uh, the accuser, one of Epstein's many alleged victims, filed a federal lawsuit in New York in August of last year, accusing Britain's Prince Andrew of abusing her on multiple occasions when she was 17. Her lawsuit against uh, Alan Dershowitz and his countersuit against her are also playing out in the Southern District of New York. In a legal brief filed on Wednesday... Uh, The accuser uh, requested that the judge unseal the names of the John Doe currently kept out of the public eye, and that's plural, in part due to their complaints of how disruptive the media attention would be to their lives. So the concern is those who are alleged to have engaged in this unlawful activity are concerned about the uh, disruption that the media attention would bring to their lives without regard to the victims whose lives have already been Uh, Disrupted to put it mildly upon review of the objections of those does as they referred to it is apparent that their objections essentially mirror objections to unsealing that this court has already rejected the attorney wrote as cited by the procedure of the prince and the pervert podcast that is chronicling the events of this case. Maxwell has previously fought the unsealing of the legal names of the John Doe's revealed in the still-sealed court documents, but a letter from her lawyer dated the 12th of this month notes that Maxwell does not wish to further address detailed objections submitted by non-party Doe's, and then there are numbers assigned to them, so they are known but not named, 17, 53, 54, 55, 73, 93, and 151. That gives you some idea of the numbers um, that are being uh, considered here. You can read the full letter uh, online if you're interested. Well, the fact that Maxwell is no longer interested in keeping the name seals doesn't mean, of course, that they will be revealed. That decision will be left to a judge, Loretta Preska, who's presiding over the case. What it does likely indicate, however, is that now that Maxwell is a convicted felon, she doesn't really care about protecting the names anymore or as Law and Crimes Adam Klasfeld uh, tweeted in a letter, um, uh, the uh, the game is up, and those who have been engaged in this activity are very likely to be vulnerable to being exposed in this case. And while in this particular case, it certainly has the potential to um, have an impact on whether or not individuals involved in this scheme are held accountable, it may have a chilling effect on others um, who are engaged in or are likely to engage in Uh, this kind of activity in the future. So it's at least encouraging to me that we're moving in a direction that uh, should put the fear of God in those who are contemplating this kind of activity or are already um, very involved in it. I want to remind you that next Friday and Saturday is Mission Connection Northwest. Now this has been a premier event in the Portland metro area for 20 years. In fact, this is the 20th anniversary of Mission Connection. And uh, this year, unlike last year, it will be in person. So I'm so looking forward uh, to being together. Now, they're going to observe the protocols that are necessary for us to be able to gather safely. And those are going to be dictated by the church. So be prepared to wear a mask. But what a joy it is that we can be in proximity to one another, worship together and enjoy fellowship as we consider Um, missions uh, here and abroad. So Mission Connection, now January 21st and 22nd. If you've been looking for ways to, um, to serve God, if you want to be encouraged, you want to learn more about contemporary world missions, you don't want to miss Mission Connection Northwest. Again, Friday and Saturday, the 21st and 22nd at Village Church in Beaverton. I'm delighted that we will once again broadcast live from that location on Friday from 4 to 6. I also have the opportunity and the joy to co MC the conference along with Bill McLeod, who is the executive director. It includes a number of um, inspirational speakers in the plenary sessions, 80 plus uh, workshops, 80 plus uh, exhibitors and resources so it's going to be a lot of fun kevin palau will be speaking and i'm so looking forward to hearing from him in light of the passing of luis palau who i think many of us considered our own you'll also have an opportunity to hear from pastor adrian reeves with the national african-american missions conference operation mobilization president andrew scott and jeannie marie with frontiers all of that and more at mission connection it is of course free but you have to register to attend all the details can be found at kpdq.com or you can go directly to mission connection.com and connection of course in this case is spelled with an x mission connection coming this next weekend looking forward to seeing many of you there all right coming up we're going to hear from peter wood the book is simply titled wrath america enraged we uh, do seem to be on edge. What do we do about it? Well, We'll talk with uh, or hear from Peter Wood on that very subject when he joins the program for the next couple of segments. We'll also bring you up to date on the Supreme Court and its decision on the OSHA vaccine mandates and whether or not they have the authority to implement such a thing and the voters' uh, rights legislation and filibuster that the president went to the Hill earlier today to champion. All of that uh, when we return on The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that anger now dominates American politics. You've probably noticed. It wasn't always so. Happy Days Are Here Again was FDR's campaign song in 1932. By contrast, candidate Kamala Harris's 2020 campaign song was Mary J. Blige's uh, Work That. Let them get mad. They're going to hate anyway. Well, Both the left and the right now summon anger as the main way to motivate their supporters. After the election, both sides became even more uh, indignant. The left accuses the right of insurrection. The right accuses the left of fraud. And his book is about how we got here, about how America changed from a nation that could be roused to anger, but preferred self-control to a nation permanently dialed to 11. The book is titled Wrath. And what an appropriate word uh, for where we are today, wrath, America enraged. Peter Wood is the president of the National Association of Scholars and author of the new book, Wrath, America enraged, as well as last year's uh, acclaimed 1620, a critical response to the 1619 project a former professor of anthropology and college provost. He is the author of several books about American culture, including diversity, the invention of a concept and a bee in the mouth anger in America. Now that was back in 2007. He is the editor in chief of the journal academic questions and a widely published essayist. In 2019, he received the Jean Kilpatrick prize for contributions to academic freedom. He's based in New York and joins us today by phone. And I am just delighted to have you, uh, with us and appreciate your book. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you.
2: You write in the beginning of your book, um, in the section titled How to Read This Book, you write that wrath is more of an exploration than an argument. And you also write that my book reflects my uncertainty about what to do next, and I dedicate it to those who share my quandary. I have no answers, easy or otherwise, to those who seek counsel about how to recover our country from a profound betrayal by a self-serving class of powerful people. What I have is a reflection 20 years in the making on anger in America. Now, I'll just ask the simple and rather obvious question. Um, how did anger come to dominate American politics? Is it is it just as recently as the last election, or has this been building over a long period of time?
4: Well, it's been building over a long period, at least about 25 years. I, I think the the surprising thing that I found was that anger had found a home in American culture before it entered into politics. We tend to think of politics as the source of our uh, polarity these days, but it's really the destination where it went after it had already taken hold in other departments of our lives. Um, So, you know, and there's a reason for that. I think politics is by itself so fraught with the possibility of anger that people over the generations had built into it safeguards, things that were meant to enable politicians to argue with each other on the floor of the Senate, but then go out and have coffee afterwards and talk things over. Um, that set of safeguards, the, the circuit breakers that kept politics from becoming all rage all the time, has gone away. So what we have now is what politics looks like when the safeguards are removed. And uh, I see this as something that has happened across the board. It's not one side or the other that is uh, more responsible for the anger, but that doesn't mean that the anger is exactly the same on either side as well. We've got a distinct character to the anger of the left and a distinct character to the anger on the right, and the two of them when they clash, produce yet something else, a, uh, a breakdown, I would say, of uh, basic civility in American life. We're all experiencing that in one way or another. Um, I experienced it firsthand in, in my own church, and it's a, a question of whether people can disagree without uh, that getting in the way of a, of a common worship. And sometimes the answer is no, they can't. It can't. Um, and there are issues we have to deal with because of that
2: what are the the pillars that we have abandoned that make civility sort of an arcane uh, notion that no longer uh, is no longer where we hope to ultimately arrive?
4: What are the issues well well
2: the, I, the pillars uh, that uh, we the, once uh, relied upon
4: well the pillar we once relied on. Was the notion that um, we should engage in self-government, self-control? That is, we govern our individual emotions and souls, and we also govern ourselves collectively as people who share a commitment to that form of self-control. Now, that was once so common that it hardly needed to be remarked. Mm The um, the, for centuries, our country uh, focused on teaching people not only self-reliance but self-control people did have tempers they lost them at times anger is a human emotion that is bound to crop up the question is not whether they get angry but what happens when they get angry do they figure out i've got to put some guards against this i have to stop at some point um the uh for how many hundreds of years 200 at least. George Washington was the figure that we look to as the father of the country. We tend to think of him as somebody who was uh, staid and dignified and not very exciting, but his contemporaries knew the opposite. He was a man who had a terrific temper. Um, His achievement was that he learned to control it. And when he found himself uh, about to burst his bounds, he was able to draw back and take command of himself, his ability to do that is what gave him command over other people around him. Um, That lesson had been, we learned many times over the course of our country's history. uh, And one would have thought it was settled. But um, after World War II, things began to come apart. uh, I think in two ways. One was that's when Americans really began to discover Uh, Freudian psychoanalysis with the idea that if you repress your anger, it will come back at you in the form of neurosis, so it was more healthy mentally to let it all out. The other was the importation from Europe after the war of uh, existentialism and an idea that to have an authentic life, you had to be in touch with your darkest emotions and let them out. So those two things were circulating at around the same time in the early 1950s, uh, mostly on the uh, the coastal elites. But gradually they spread throughout the rest of society. Uh, it's a long story. I won't try to tell it on this uh, interview. But I think what you see happening is that the um, the licensing of anger, this new mm-hmm. form of uh, individualism. Um, gains ground because it proves to be such a useful tool for protest. Uh, People begin to understand that uh, being angry empowers them and excites other people. Anger becomes something of a spectator sport. And that's one of the first places we really see it is that uh, sports, which used to be governed by codes of sportsmanship, suddenly become uh, places where people swear and brawl and uh, it, it turns out to be, one way in which you can make anger into something that is both uh, more lived experience and less controlled. Um, We saw it happening in our uh, mass media, our movies, even in our music, uh, and angrification takes place that sweeps through culture. Uh, Key to all of that is the way we bring up children. If you teach children at a young age, you have to control yourself it's different from just letting them have their tantrums and sometimes letting them have their ways. Uh, as parental generations adopted the idea that expressive individualism is better, it's kind of morally better than self-control, uh, you begin to get people whose whole lives are uh, open to the uh, the mad swings of anger from one moment to the next. Uh so all of that had been happening for uh, 40 or 50 years before we decided that we would make it part of our politics as well. And I think the crucial years for those changes are uh, starting in the 1990s when during the Clinton years there was a lot of denunciation going on of the angry white man, but then it really, the dam breaks with um, uh, George Bush's election and over uh, Kerry in uh, 2000. After that, um, you find an angry left emerging that is just exuberant in its anger. Um, and that's something new. People have gotten angry before, but now it's something to take pride in. Look how angry I am. Uh, join me. We're going to have an anger fest. And um, that coincides pretty closely With the rise of social media so that people Mm. could uh, get online and uh, begin to egg each other on from early in the morning. So uh, it's a bit hard to tease these things apart, but the political anger and the the ostentatious anger on social media uh, begin to form a feedback loop and they accelerate. That's the stuff that was happening when I wrote my first book about anger, uh, A Bee in the Mouth, Anger in America Now. I wrote that back in 2006. And um, I was taking account of this stuff and saying that uh, uh, we really need to get control of it because this is not going to lead to any place good. Well, counsel like that seldom is heeded, and I guess I didn't really expect it to be. But I also didn't expect it to... Uh, accelerate to the degree that it has. We have now turned our politics into nothing but anger, a kind of animosity towards the guys on the other side has become the, the signature of what it means to engage in political life. No no will to find a common way is left. Um, and I have to confess that, that I share that. I'm, I don't see now how you can create A meaningful compromise between people who want the country to have no borders and people who want the borders to be enforced, or uh, people who believe that um, a a woman's right to choose trumps everything, and people who think that the right to life trumps everything. Those are not matters to be settled by a a handshake. Um, We have a Uh, a world right now in which uh, the division between those who think the uh, 2020 election was stolen and those who call that the big lie uh, can't really even talk about it. It's boiling mad at the other uh, once the uh, opposing idea is put on the table.
2: Well, I tell you what, Um, we need to take a break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Peter Wood, author of Wrath, America enraged.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars and author of the new book, Wrath, America, Enraged. Now, just before the break, you described unbridled anger as a sort of virtue signaling. And I wanted to ask, progressive elites are stoking rage on a range of issues from anti-racism, critical race theory, uh, efforts to erase American history, the 1619 Project, one example, um, uh, unfettered illegal immigrants immigration, the COVID pandemic response, new voter rights uh, comparisons. What are the risks of losing losing emotional self-control and the consequences of a culture that indulges too freely in the celebration of anger? And what kind of threat does that pose to the republic?
4: Well, that's a a hefty question. Um, I would say that all the things you're talking about are backed up with emotional rage. If you try to Uh, engage in reasoned argument with somebody who holds the positions that you just listed, Uh, you don't get reasoned argument in return. Uh, What you get is a kind of denunciation. Uh, You're a racist, you're a xenophobe, you're a homophobe, you're you're some kind of uh, person whose uh, own views are reduced to a pathological, psychological state. Um, So, What do you get when you license anger to be the tool by which you proceed through disagreements with other people? Uh, Well, what you don't get is argument. What you do get is an effort to right the person uh, out of the conversation altogether. Uh, The result of that on the political scale means that tens of millions of people are denied the right to participate in their own government. The the idea of consent of the governed, which is intrinsic to our republic, uh, disappears because the governed, in this case, can only be controlled or suppressed. Um, Now, we're talking about about a big range of issues. Each of those things is sort of compacted into an ideology in which the uh, view is that social justice or so-called social justice lies on one side And on the other side, there only uh, is this uh, category of uh, the ignorant, the uh, deplorable, uh, those who gravitate towards uh, fascist dictatorship. Um, Terms of abuse that don't really describe what anybody believes at all. Um, Since it's extremely difficult to find anybody who's an actual racist, we have this new concept of systemic racism which can be applied across the board regardless of what a person really believes or stands Mm -hmm. for. um, That is a kind of pollution of the world of uh, a a democratic polity. You can't really engage in politics if you're going to be denounced as subhuman for uh, disagreeing with anything that stands in the form of enforced doctrine by the governing party well i'm saying the governing party uh, of course can change mm-hmm. and uh we are now in this situation where uh, we face uh, a a government that in, in my view was elected by let's say mischief uh actions taken that didn't fully comport with the rule of law has brought in um president biden and vice president harris Uh, They have been able to use the levers of government to advance the kinds of policies you're talking about. We have simply no border enforcement now at all. Um, We bugged out of Afghanistan, abandoning friends and citizens, as well as uh, billions of dollars of equipment. Uh, All that sort of thing rankles. But if you try to express it in uh, the mainstream media in America... Uh, you will find yourself not just cut down in that act, but perhaps prohibited from appearing anywhere else. We we have the these incredibly powerful things like Facebook and Twitter, which seem to have a, a capacity to say you don't exist. If we disagree with you, we will prohibit you from expressing any views at all on our platform. And since all the platforms interlock with one another, it really creates a, a class of non-citizens. Um, so when I, I say that in these circumstances, I, I share in the anger. I, I understand where the wrath of the right comes from. It comes from being denied participation in your own society. Um, the real question in my mind is, what can we do to prevent this wrath from descending into uh, to violence or Uh, Mere anarchy, or worse, perhaps despair, Uh, the despair of the person who just gives up and retreats into some kind of bleak inner world, Um, I much favor that we uh, take our wrath and turn it to as constructive an end as we can. That may mean uh, winning elections or participating more fully in local politics but it may also mean simply uh, engaging in civil disobedience, saying that there's some things you can't make me do. Um, While I myself have been vaccinated, when I see people who refuse to be vaccinated because they think that's a illegal or improper intrusion of the state on their personal privacy, uh, I'm perfectly good with that. I think that's a a worthy act and it comes with some risks. of how you will be dealt with by the authorities, but you're making a statement there that makes some sense in pushing back against an authoritarian regime that wants to turn everything we do into a matter of state policy.
2: Well, I appreciate that in addition to describing where we are as a country, as a culture with regard to anger, that you also offer... um, Advice that wrath is a dangerous weapon. You have to use it wisely to avoid self-injury and Mm -hmm. that that it needs to be used constructively in in overcoming things like, um, as you pointed out, censorship and silencing and criminalization of dissenting opinion, other forms of, of persecution. What encouragement can you give our listeners as our time is ticking away? Um, who recognize and will immediately recognize what you write about in the book, but want to to do something different, to be constructive, to perhaps move the republic in a direction that's more, uh, more constructive and favorable to a future?
4: Well, I took heart from the uh, school board elections and state elections that occurred this month, especially in Virginia, but also in New Jersey, here where I am in New York, where there was a real sign that uh, the public is sufficiently fed up to push back against this, that's one thing. When I see people resisting, as in uh, air traffic controllers or airline pilots or in and again in New York, it's been nurses and doctors and uh, firefighters and policemen who have uh, put some brakes on this. Whatever we do for a living, we have some opportunity to exert ourselves beyond just our individual choices, and to influence other people. Maybe the hardest thing of all to do is is to bring this into um, your actual community, your friends, Mm -hmm. uh, relations, uh, people that you go to church with. Um, I'm in the midst of that now, and I I live in a a deep uh, blue part of uh, New York City. I'm on Upper West Side. I'm surrounded by people who... uh, strongly disagree with my every opinion, Um, and yet I try to pick my way through that by showing people that uh, I can disagree with them without becoming a monster. Um, But I don't want to give up my right to dissent, and I think that that's a hard choice that we each have to make individually about where you're going to dissent and how you're going to do it. Um, And sometimes the results are just not very nice. You lose friends or in, in one of my cases, a community a group at church just broke up uh, because people couldn't stand of uh, knowing, just knowing, not even expressing that others held different views. Mm. I think it's important that that kind of thing actually happen. that you don't live in fear of it happening to the point where you begin to compromise away your right to self-expression. Yeah. Um, I don't encourage people to be antagonistic. I do encourage them to be um, thoughtfully forceful in maintaining uh, their opinions against peer pressure.
2: Yeah, Great advice. Well, the book is really a must read. Wrath America Enraged. I wish we had more time because there's so much more to talk about, but I would highly recommend it. It's published by Encounter. And Peter Wood, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it with us.
4: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Appreciate it very much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up. And then we're going to talk about what's happening in the Supreme Court tomorrow on Roe v. Wade.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that Mission Connection Northwest is coming up next weekend, Friday and Saturday. This year, it's going to be at Village Church in Beaverton, a Friday evening and all day Saturday. The Mission Conference can help you discover your place in God's global plan. 80 plus workshops, 80 plus exhibitors and resources. You can get all the important details at kpdq.com or go to missionconnection.com. You need to register, but the event, as has always been the case, is free. So do check it out. We're going to be broadcasting live from Mission Connection next Friday from 4 to 6. So if you're there early, we'd love for you to stop by and say hello. That's all coming up next weekend. In person, Mission Connection Northwest. And by the way, if you cannot attend the conference, portions of it, the plenary sessions, I believe, will be available online and at some later point, the um, workshops, most of them, not all. Some, it it would endanger the missionaries and the mission work in some parts of the world, but most will be available online as well. Get all that information at missionconnection.com or kpdq.com. Well, President Biden is on track for what could be one of the worst weeks of his presidency as his poll numbers continue to crater at the same time his legislative agenda stalls and court battles fail or at least portions of the court battle. Well, the Supreme Court, as we mentioned earlier, blocked the president's push to force employers across the country with over 100 employees to vaccinate their workers in a 6-3 ruling. It dealt a sizable blow to the administration's vaccination push. Well, that ruling came down as the president was on Capitol Hill. He was trying to lobby support for his party's bill that would overhaul the federal election system in the United States. And as part of that push, the president gave a racially charged speech on Tuesday, linking his GOP opposition to Democrat segregationists like George Wallace, and called for the filibuster to be suspended to pass the bill. Well, the president learned uh, today that his speech, which was widely panned, not just by Republicans, it even drew criticism from his longtime friends, Democratic Senator Dick Derman and uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, along with his appearance on Capitol Hill, were not enough to sway Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, uh, uh, whose support he needed. I will not vote to eliminate or weaken the filibuster Manchin announced today to go along with Cinema's speech on the Senate floor opposing the move. Which delivers a fatal blow to the bill. Uh, the president acknowledged today that the bill could be dead for now. In addition to the fizzling legislation and court defeat, polling shows the American public's appro- dis—I should say—approval of the president's job performance continues to crater. The president's approval rating stands at just thirty-three percent and disapproval at 53% among Americans in a Quinnipiac University national poll conducted earlier this month and released yesterday. The president's approval is down three points from Quinnipiac's previous survey, which was conducted in November, with disapproval remaining unchanged. Well, according to the Quinnipiac poll, the president is deeply underwater on his handling of three top issues, the economy at 34%, foreign policy at 35%, And the coronavirus pandemic at 39 percent. Well, news on the economic front this week wasn't any better for the president as inflation spiked at the fastest pace in nearly four decades in December. Rapid price gains fueled consumer fears about the economy. Surprisingly enough, there hasn't been much said by the administration about the economy, the number one issue for most Americans. Well, the Consumer Price Index rose 7 percent in December from a year ago. That's according to a new Labor Department report released on Wednesday, marking the fastest increase since June of 1982, when inflation hit 7.1 percent. Well, the CPI that measures a bevy of um, goods ranging from gasoline and health care to groceries and rent Jumped 0.5 percent in the one month period from November. Well, on Twitter, the president was hounded by the hashtag Bear Shelves Biden, which trended on the social media platform. Users posting pictures of empty grocery and retail store shelves stemming from the supply chain issues that have lingered over the last several months. Also, the president's campaign promise to shut down the coronavirus continues to haunt him, highlighted by 1.4 million new coronavirus cases in the United States on Monday, the highest daily total for any country in the world since the start of the pandemic. Now, I think it's pretty clear that the president cannot control Uh, The coronavirus. But when politicians make those kinds of brazen statements, the public tends to hold them accountable, even if they were unreasonable at the time they were said. A White House press secretary was asked on Thursday about how things are going pretty poorly right now, to which Sackey responded by touting the fact that 200 million people are vaccinated in the United States and cited record job growth, end quote. We also recognize that when you have a small margin and threshold in the Senate, it's very difficult to get things done and to get legislation passed, she went on to say. And the fact that the president, under his leadership, got the American Rescue Plan passed, a bipartisan infrastructure bill with 19 Republican votes in the Senate and about six votes in the House. The fact that we are still continuing to work with members to determine the path forward on Build Back Better, that we have the vast majority of Democrats in the Senate supporting voting rights That's a path forward for us, end quote. Well, it was a very positive way of looking at a very difficult day. Well, conservatives on social media have hammered the president over his uh, rough week, outlining the various setbacks he has endured. That's what folks do on the other side of the political aisle. The White House didn't uh, respond to requests for a comment on this very bad, very rough day for the president. Uh, We'll continue to follow the story. Keep in mind, this is the president's first year. He's got three to go. A lot can happen between now and then. So people who are rejoicing today may have uh, a different perspective in the days ahead. We'll just have to wait and see. Well, I mentioned earlier that uh, the Supreme Court killed the president's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for private employers. Uh, They struck down the um, uh, vaccine mandate for that group and other organizations with at least 100 employees. In a separate case, however, the high court did allow vaccine mandates for employees of federally funded health care facilities. Well, in the main, the majority of justices express doubt that the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration that is part of the Labor Department has the legal authority to impose an emergency regulation to implement a vaccine mandate. Now, keep in mind, lower courts still have to weigh in on these issues. Uh, The majority opinion says administrative um, agencies are creatures of statute. They accordingly possess only the authority that Congress has provided. The Labor Department secretary has ordered 84 million Americans to either obtain a COVID-19 vaccine or undergo weekly medical testing at their own expense. This is no everyday exercise of federal power. The question then is whether the Occupational Safety and Health Act plainly uh, authorizes the secretary's mandate. It does not. The act empowers the secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures. Well, the high court heard arguments on Friday on the OSHA rule, which was supposed to go into effect this week before being halted pending court action. Well, the new rule required employees either to get fully vaccinated or be tested for covid-19 on a weekly basis. The justices ruled six to three in the two separate decisions, but broke down along different lines. Well, after the decision, the White House press secretary touted the High Court's decision upholding the vaccine mandates for healthcare facilities, which she said would cover about 17 million employees. She added that many employers have imposed vaccine requirements without being told to do so by the government. Healthcare facilities that receive Medicaid and Medicare funds are still subject to a separate Department of Health and Human Services vaccine requirement based on their rec- um, receipt from the federal government, those funds, well, business groups were um, heaping praise on the U.S. Supreme Court after the uh, uh, the high court halted the president's coronavirus vaccine and testing mandate for businesses with 100 or more employees. The National Federation of Independent Business that sued along with dozens of other plaintiffs to stop the administration from issuing its diktat. Uh, via the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, were among the first to celebrate, writing, Today's decision is welcome relief for American small businesses who are still trying to get their business back on track since the beginning of the pandemic. That's from the uh, Small Business Legal Center Executive Director Karen Harn uh, in a statement following that decision. Meanwhile, liberals across the Twitter sphere reacted with anger, attacks on Republicans and calls for Democrats to pack the Supreme Court, following the nation's highest court decision to block President Biden's vaccine mandate on businesses with 100 plus employees. The Supreme Court's conservative majority has chosen to prolong and deepen the misery of the pandemic. The Social Justice Association Alliance for Justice tweeted in response to the decision. The people need their courts back. Uh, Republicans want to prolong the pandemic, have more people get sick and die. Really, do they actually believe Republicans want more people to get sick and die? So they can blame Biden and win the election. Well, maybe there are some who want that. Former Hillary Clinton adviser, Zach uh, Pekanis, he accused the court of prolonging the pandemic while others blamed former President Trump and called on Biden to act. Well, that's where we go now to the lowest common denominator accusing one another of wanting to kill their opponents. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the decision has been made in the court with regard to Businesses. Uh, But the uh, issues are not completely resolved at this point. We'll continue to follow this ever-growing, ever-expanding, unresolved situation. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, we're going to take a uh, break of about, what, 22 hours. We'll be back on Friday. In fact, we'll uh, take a look at the headlines. We're also going to take a look at the lighter side of the news, so we'll have an opportunity to smile or at least put a smile on your face. And we'll take a look at the uh, Christian outlook in the second hour of the program as well. So have a great night, and we'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Georgine
1: Rice Show podcast.